Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 18 The Forcing of the Trap The position wherein I stood does not appear very favourable to thought, yet for the next moment or two I thought profoundly, I had, I told myself, scored one point. Be Rupert Hentzau's errand what it might, and the villainy he was engaged on be what it would. I had scored one point. He was on the other side of the moat from the king, and it would be by no fault of mine if ever he set foot on the same side again. I had three left to deal with, two on guard and de Gauté in his bed. Ah, oh, if I had the keys! I would have risked everything and attacked Deschard and Bersonim before their friends could join them. But I was powerless. I must wait till the coming of my friends enticed someone to cross the bridge, someone with keys. And I waited, as it seemed, for half an hour, really for about five minutes, before the next act in the rapid drama began. All was still on the other side. The Duke's room remained inscrutable behind its shutters. The light burnt steadily in Madame de Maubin's window. Then I heard the faintest, faintest sound. It came from behind the door which led to the drawbridge, on the other side of the moat. It but just reached my ear, yet I could not be mistaken as to what it was. It was made by a key being turned very carefully and slowly. Who was turning it? And of what room was it the key? there leapt before my eyes the picture of young Rupert, with the key in one hand, his sword in the other, and an evil smile on his face. But I did not know what door it was, nor on which of his favourite pursuits young Rupert was spending the hours of that night. I was soon to be enlightened, for the next moment, before my friends could be near the chateau door, before Johann the keeper would have thought to nerve himself for his task, there was a sudden crash from the room with the lighted window, it sounded as though someone had flung down a lamp, and the window went dark and black. At the same instant, a cry rang out, shrilled in the night, "'Help! Help! Michael, help!' and was followed by a shriek of utter terror. I was tingling in every nerve. I stood on the topmost step, clinging to the threshold of the gate with my right hand and holding my sword in my left. Suddenly I perceived that the gateway was broader than the bridge— there was a dark corner on the opposite side where a man could stand. I darted across and stood there. Thus placed, I commanded the path, and no man could pass between the chateau and the old castle till he had tried conclusions with me. There was another shriek. Then a door was flung open and clanged against the wall, and I heard the handle of a door savagely twisted. "'Open the door! In God's name, what's the matter?' 
cried a voice, the voice of Black Michael himself. He was answered by the very words I had written in my letter. Help, Michael! Hence thou! A fierce oath rang out from the Duke, and with a loud thud he threw himself against the door. At the same moment I heard a window above my head open, and a voice cried, "'What's the matter?' and I heard a man's hasty footsteps. I grasped my sword. If de Gauté came my way, the six would be less by one more. Then I heard the clash of crossed swords, and a tramp of feet, and I cannot tell the thing so quickly as it all happened, for it all seemed to come at once. There was an angry cry from Madame's room, the cry of a wounded man. The window was flung open. Young Rupert stood there, sword in hand. He turned his back, and I saw his body go forward to the lunge. "'Ah, oh, Johann, there's one for you. Come on, Michael!' Johann was there, then, had come to the rescue of the Duke. How would he open the door for me? For I feared that Rupert had slain him. "'Help!' cried the Duke's voice, faint and husky. I heard a step on the stairs above me, and I heard a stir down to my left in the direction of the King's cell. But before anything happened on my side of the moat, I saw five or six men round young Rupert in the embrasure of Madame's window. Three or four times he lunged with incomparable dash and dexterity. For an instant they fell back, leaving a ring round him. He leapt onto the parapet of the window, laughing as he leapt, and waving his sword in his hand. He was drunk with blood, and he laughed again wildly as he flung himself headlong into the moat. What became of him then? I did not see. For as he leapt, de Gauthier's lean face looked out through the door by me, and without a second's hesitation I struck at him with all the strength God had given me, and he fell dead in the doorway, without a word or a groan. I dropped on my knees by him. Where were the keys? I found myself muttering, The keys, man, the keys, as though he had been yet alive and could listen. And when I could not find them, I— God forgive me, I believe I struck a dead man's face. At last I had them. There were but three. Seizing the largest, I felt the lock of the door that led to the cell. I fitted in the key. It was right. The lock turned. I drew the door close behind me, and locked it as noiselessly as I could, putting the key in my pocket. I found myself at the top of a flight of steep stone stairs. An oil lamp burnt dimly in the bracket. I took it down and held it in my hand, and I stood and listened. "'What in the devil can it be?' I heard a voice say. It came from behind a door that faced me at the bottom of the stairs. And another answered, "'Shall we kill him?' I strained to hear the answer, and could have sobbed with relief when Detchard's voice came grating and cold. "'Wait a bit. There'll be trouble if we strike too soon.' There was a moment's silence. Then I heard the bolt of the door, cautiously drawn back. Instantly I put out the light I held, replacing the lamp in its bracket. "'It's dark. The lamp's out. Have you a light?' said the other voice, Bersonin's. No doubt they had a light, but they should not use it. It had come to the crisis now, and I rushed down the steps and flung myself against the door. Bersonin had unbolted it, and it gave way before me. The Belgian stood there, sword in hand, and Detchard was sitting on a couch at the side of the room. In astonishment at seeing me, Bersonin recoiled. Detchard jumped to his sword. I rushed madly at the Belgian. He gave way before me, and I drove him up against the wall. He was no swordsman, though he fought bravely, and in a moment he lay on the floor before me. 
I turned. Deschard was not there. Faithful to his orders, he had not risked a fight with me, but had rushed straight to the door of the king's room, opened it and slammed it behind him. Even now he was at his work inside, and surely he would have killed the king, and perhaps me also, had it not been for one devoted man who gave his life for the king. For when I forced the door, the sight I saw was this. The king stood in the corner of the room, broken by his sickness. He could do nothing. His fettered hands moved uselessly up and down, and he was laughing horribly in half-mad delirium. Deschard and the doctor were together in the middle of the room, and the doctor had flung himself on the murderer, pinning his hands to his sides for an instant. Then Deschard wrenched himself free from the feeble grip, and as I entered drove his sword through the hapless man. Then he turned on me, crying, "'At last!' We were sword to sword. By blessed chance neither he nor Bersonin had been wearing their revolvers. I found them afterward, ready loaded on the mantelpiece of the outer room. It was hard by the door, ready to their hands, but my sudden rush-in had cut off access to them. Yes, we were man to man, and we began to fight, silently, sternly, and hard. Yet I remember little of it, save that the man was my match with the sword, nay, and more, for he knew more tricks than I, and that he forced me back against the bars that guarded the entrance to Jacob's ladder, and I saw a smile on his face, and he wounded me in the left arm. No glory do I take for that contest. I believe that the man would have mastered me and slain me, and then done his butcher's work, for he was the most skilful swordsman I have ever met. But even as he pressed me hard, the half-mad, wasted, one creature in the corner leapt high in lunatic mirth, shrieking, "'It's Cousin Rudolph! Cousin Rudolph! I'll help you, Cousin Rudolph!' And catching up a chair in his hands, he could but just lift it from the ground and hold it uselessly before him, he came towards us. Hope came to me, "'Come on!' I cried. "'Come on! Drive it against his legs!' Deschard replied with a savage thrust. He all but had me. "'Come on! Come on, man!' I cried. "'Come and share the fun!' And the king laughed gleefully and came on, pushing his chair before him. With an oath Deschard skipped back, and before I knew what he was doing had turned his sword against the king. He made one fierce cut at the king, and the king, with a piteous cry, dropped where he stood. The stout ruffian turned to face me again, but his own hand had prepared his destruction, for in turning he trod in the pool of blood that flowed from the dead physician. He slipped, he fell, like a dart I was upon him, I caught him by the throat, and before he could recover himself I drove my point through his neck, and with a stifled curse he fell across the body of his victim. Was the king dead? It was my first thought. I rushed to where he lay. Aye, it seemed as if he were dead, for he had a great gash across the forehead, and he lay still in a huddled heap on the floor. I dropped on my knees beside him, and leant my ear down to hear if he breathed. But before I could there was a loud rattle from the outside. I knew the sound. The drawbridge was being pushed out. A moment later it rang home against the wall on my side of the moat. I should be caught in a trap, and the king with me, if he yet lived." He must take his chance to live or die. I took my sword and passed into the outer room. Who was pushing the drawbridge out? My men? If so, all was well. My eye fell on the revolvers, and I seized one, and paused to listen in the doorway of the outer room. 
"'To listen,' say I, "'yes, and to get my breath.' And I tore my shirt and twisted a strip of it round my bleeding arm and stood listening again. I would have given the world to hear Zapt's voice, for I was faint, spent, and weary, and that wild-cat Rupert Hentzau was yet at large in the castle. Yet, because I could better defend the narrow door at the top of the stairs than the wider entrance to the room, I dragged myself up the steps and stood behind it listening. What was the sound? Again a strange one for the place and the time. An easy, scornful, merry laugh, the laugh of young Rupert Hentzau. I could scarcely believe that a sane man would laugh. Yet the laugh told me that my men had not come, for they must have shot Rupert ere now if they had come. And the clock struck half-past two. My God, the door had not been opened. They had gone to the bank. They had not found me. They had gone by now back to Tarlenheim with the news of the king's death and mine. Well, it would be true before they got there. Was not Rupert laughing in triumph? For a moment I sank unnerved against the door. Then I started up, alert again, for Rupert cried scornfully, "'Well, the bridge is there. Come over it. And in God's name, let's see Black Michael. Keep back, you curse, Michael. Come and fight for her.' If it were a three-cornered fight, I might yet bear my part. I turned the key in the door and looked out. End of chapter 18「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 19 Face to Face in the Forest For a moment I could see nothing for the glare of lanterns and torches caught me full in the eyes from the other side of the bridge. But soon the scene grew clear, and it was a strange scene. The bridge was in its place. At the far end of it stood a group of the Duke's servants. Two or three carried the lights which had dazzled me. Three or four held pikes in rest. They were huddled together. Their weapons were protruded before them. Their faces were pale and agitated. To put it plainly, they looked in as arrant a fright as I have seen men look, and they gazed apprehensively at a man who stood in the middle of the bridge, sword in hand. Rupert Hentzau was in his trousers and shirt. The white linen was stained with blood, but his easy, buoyant pose told me that he was himself either not touched at all or merely scratched. There he stood, holding the bridge against them, and daring them to come on, or rather bidding them send Black Michael to him. And they, having no firearms, cowered before the desperate man, and dared not attack him. They whispered to one another, and in the backmost rank I saw my friend Johann, leaning against the portal of the door, and staunching with a handkerchief the blood which flowed from a wound in his cheek. By marvellous chance I was master. The cravens would oppose me no more than they dared attack Rupert. I had but to raise my revolver, and I sent him to his account with his sins on his head. He did not so much as know that I was there. I did nothing. Why, I hardly know to this day. I had killed one man stealthily that night, 
and another by luck rather than skill. Perhaps it was that. Again, villain as the man was, I did not relish being one of a crowd against him. Perhaps it was that. But stronger than either of these restrained feelings came a curiosity and a fascination which held me spellbound, watching for the outcome of the scene. "'Michael, you dog! Michael, if you can stand, come on!' cried Rupert. And he advanced a step, the group shrinking back a little before him. "'Michael, you bastard, come on!' The answer to his taunts came in the wild cry of a woman. "'He's dead! My God, he's dead!' "'Dead?' shouted Rupert. "'I struck better than I knew!' And he laughed triumphantly. Then he went on. "'Down with your weapons there! I'm your master now! Down with them, I say!' I believe they would have obeyed, but as he spoke came new things. Firstly there arose a distant sound, as of shouts and knockings from the other side of the chateau. My heart leapt. It must be my men, come by a happy disobedience to seek me. The noise continued, but none of the rest seemed to heed it. Their attention was chained by what now happened before their eyes. The group of servants parted, and a woman staggered on to the bridge. Antoinette de Maubin was in a loose white robe. Her dark hair streamed over her shoulders, her face was ghastly pale, and her eyes gleamed wildly in the light of the torches. In her shaking hand she held a revolver, and as she tottered forward she fired it at Rupert Hentzow. The ball missed him and struck the woodwork over my head. "'Faith, madam,' laughed Rupert, "'had your eyes been no more deadly than your shooting, I had not been in this scrape, nor Black Michael in hell to-night.' She took no notice of his words. With a wonderful effort she calmed herself till she stood still and rigid. Then, very slowly and deliberately, she began to raise her arm again, taking the most careful aim. He would be mad to risk it. He must rush on her, chancing the bullet, or retreat toward me. I covered him with my weapon. He did neither. Before she had got her aim, he bowed in his most graceful fashion, and cried, "'I can't kill where I've kissed,' and before she or I could stop him, laid his hand on the parapet of the bridge, and lightly leapt into the moat. At the very moment I heard a rush of feet, and a voice— I knew Zapt's cry. "'God, it's the Duke, dead!' Then I knew that the King needed me no more, and throwing down my revolver, I sprang out on the bridge. There was a cry of wild wonder. "'The King!' Then I, like Rupert Hentzow, sword in hand, vaulted over the parapet, intent on finishing my quarrel with him, where I saw his curly head fifteen yards off in the water of the moat. He swam swiftly and easily. I was weary and half crippled with my wounded arm. I could not gain on him. For a time I made no sound, but as we rounded the corner of the old keep, I cried, "'Stop, Rupert! Stop!' I saw him look over his shoulder, but he swam on. He was under the bank now, searching, as I guessed, for a spot that he could climb. I knew there to be none, but there was my rope, which would still be hanging where I left it. He would come to where it was before I could.' Perhaps he would miss it, perhaps he would find it, and if he drew it up after him, he would get a good start on me. I put forth all my remaining strength and pressed on. 
At last I began to gain on him, for he, occupied with his search, unconsciously slackened his pace. Ah! he had found it! A low shout of triumph came from him. He laid hold of it and began to haul himself up. I was near enough to hear him mutter, "'Ah, oh, the devil comes this here!' I was at the rope, and he, hanging in mid-air, saw me, but I could not reach him. "'Hello! Who's here?' he cried in startled tones. For a moment I believe he took me for the king. I dare say I was pale enough to lend colour to the thought. But an instant later he cried, "'Why, it's the play-actor! How came you here, man?' and so saying he gained the bank. I laid hand on the rope, but I paused. He stood on the bank, sword in hand, and he could cut my head open or spit me through the heart as I came up. I let go the rope. "'Never mind,' said I, "'but as I'm here, I think I'll stay.' He smiled down on me. "'These women are the deuce,' he began, when suddenly the great bell of the castle started to ring furiously and a loud shout reached us from the moat. Rupert smiled again and waved his hand to me. "'I should like a turn with you, but it's a little too hot,' said he, and he disappeared from above me. In an instant, without thinking of danger, I laid my hand to the rope. I was up. I saw him thirty yards off, running like a deer towards the shelter of the forest. For once Rupert Hentzau had chosen discretion for his part. I laid my feet to the ground and rushed after him, calling to him to stand. He would not. Unwounded and vigorous, he gained on me at every step. But forgetting everything in the world except him and my thirst for his blood, I pressed on, and soon the deep shades of the forest of Zender engulfed us both, pursued and pursuer. It was three o'clock now, and day was dawning. I was on a long, straight grass avenue, and a hundred yards ahead ran young Rupert, his curls waving in the fresh breeze. I was weary and panting. He looked over his shoulder and waved his hand again to me. He was mocking me, for he saw that he had the pace of me. I was forced to pause for breath. A moment later Rupert turned sharply to the right and was lost from my sight. I thought it was all over, and in deep vexation sank on the ground. But I was up again directly, for a scream rang through the forest, a woman's scream. Putting forth the last of my strength, I ran on to the place where he had turned out of my sight, and turning also I saw him again. But alas, I could not touch him. He was in the act of lifting a girl down from her horse. Doubtless it was her scream that I heard. She looked like a small farmer's or a peasant's daughter, and she carried a basket on her arm. Probably she was on her way to the early market at Zender. Her horse was a stout, well-shaped animal, Master Rupert lifted her down amid her shrieks. The sight of him frightened her, but he treated her gently, laughed, kissed her, and gave her money. Then he jumped on the horse, sitting sideways like a woman, and then he waited for me. I, on my part, waited for him. Presently he rode toward me, keeping his distance, however. He lifted up his hand, saying, "'What did you in the castle?' "'I killed three of your friends,' said I. "'What? You've gone to the cells?' "'Yes. And the king? "'He was hurt by Detchard before I killed Detchard, "'but I pray that he lives.' "'You fool,' said Rupert pleasantly. "'One more thing I did.' "'And what's that?' "'I spared your life. 
I was behind you on the bridge with a revolver in my hand. No, faith, I was between two fires. Get off your horse, I cried, and fight like a man. Before a lady, said he, pointing to the girl, fie, your majesty. Then in my rage, hardly knowing what I did, I rushed at him. For a moment he seemed to waver. Then he reined his horse in and stood waiting for me. On I went in my folly. I seized the bridle and I struck at him. He parried and thrust at me. I fell back a pace and rushed in at him again, and this time I reached his face and laid his cheek open and darted back before he could strike me. He seemed almost mazed at the fierceness of my attack. Otherwise I think he must have killed me. I sank on my knee, panting, expecting him to ride at me, and so he would have done, and then and there I doubt not one or both of us would have died. But at the moment there came a shout from behind us, and looking round I saw, just at the turn of the avenue, a man on a horse. He was riding hard, and he carried a revolver in his hand. It was Fritz von Thalenheim, my faithful friend. Rupert saw him and knew that the game was up. He checked his rush at me and flung his leg over the saddle, but yet, just for a moment, he waited. Leaning forward, he tossed the hair off his forehead and smiled and said, "'Au revoir, Rudolf Rassendil.' Then, with his cheeks streaming blood, but his lips laughing and his body swaying with ease and grace, he bowed to me, and he bowed to the farm-girl, who had drawn near in trembling fascination." and he waved his hand to Fritz, who was just within range, and let fly a shot at him. The ball came nigh doing its work, for it struck the sword he held, and he dropped the sword with an oath, wringing his fingers, and clapped his heels hard on his horse's belly, and rode away at a gallop. And I watched him go down the long avenue, riding as though he rode for his pleasure, and singing as he went, for all that there was that gash in his cheek. Once again he turned to wave his hand, and then the gloom of the thickets swallowed him, and he was lost from our sight. Thus he vanished, reckless and weary, graceful and graceless, handsome, debonair, vile, and unconquered, and I flung my sword passionately on the ground, and cried to Fritz to ride after him. But Fritz stopped his horse, and leapt down and ran to me, and knelt, putting his arm about me. And indeed it was time, for the wound that Detchard had given me was broken forth afresh, and my blood was staining the ground. "'Then give me the horse!' I cried, staggering to my feet and throwing his arms off me. And the strength of my rage carried me so far as where the horse stood, and then I fell prone beside it, and Fritz knelt by me again. "'Fritz!' I said. "'Aye, friend, dear friend,' said he, tender as a woman. "'Is the king alive?' He took his handkerchief and wiped my lips and bent, and kissed me on the forehead. "'Thanks to the most gallant gentleman that lives,' said he softly, "'the king is alive.' The little farm-girl stood by us, weeping for fright and wide-eyed for wonder, for she had seen me at Zender, and was I not pallid, dripping, foul and bloody as I was, yet was not I the king? And when I heard that the king was alive, I strove to cry, "'Hurrah!' but I could not speak, and I laid my head back in Fritz's arms, and closed my eyes, and I groaned, and then, lest Fritz should do me wrong in his thoughts, I opened my eyes, and tried to say hurrah again, but I could not, and being very tired, and now very cold, 
I huddled myself close up to Fritz to get the warmth of him, and shut my eyes again, and went to sleep. End of chapter 19 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 20 The Prisoner and the King in order to have a full understanding of what had occurred in the castle of Zender, it is necessary to supplement my account of what I myself saw and did on that night, by relating briefly what I afterwards learnt from Fritz and from Madame de Maubin. The story told by the latter explained clearly how it happened that the cry which I had arranged as a stratagem and a sham had come in dreadful reality before its time, and had thus, as it seemed at the moment, ruined our hopes— while in the end it had favoured them. The unhappy woman, fired, I believe, by a genuine attachment to the Duke of Strelsau, no less than by the dazzling prospects which a dominion over him opened before her eyes, had followed him at his request from Paris to Ruritania. He was a man of strong passions, but of stronger will, and his cool head ruled both. He was content to take all and give nothing, when she arrived, she was not long in finding that she had a rival in the Princess Flavia. Rendered desperate, she stood at nothing which might give or keep for her her power over the Duke. As I say, he took and gave not. Simultaneously, Antoinette found herself entangled in his audacious schemes. Unwilling to abandon him, but bound to him by the chains of shame and hope, yet she would not be a decoy, nor, at his bidding, lure me to death. Hence the letters of warning she had written. Whether the lines she sent to Flavia were inspired by good or bad feeling, by jealousy or by pity, I do not know. But here also she served us well. When the Duke went to Zender she accompanied him, and here, for the first time, she learnt the full measure of his cruelty, and was touched with compassion for the unfortunate king. From this time she was with us. Yet, from what she told me, I know that she still, as women will, loved Michael, and trusted to gain his life, if not his pardon, from the king, as the reward for her assistance. His triumph she did not desire, for she loathed his crime, and loathed yet more fiercely what would be the prize of it, his marriage with his cousin, Princess Flavia. At Zender new forces came into play, the lust and daring of young Rupert, he was caught by her beauty, perhaps. Perhaps it was enough for him that she belonged to another man, and that she hated him. For many days there had been quarrels and ill-will between him and the Duke, and the scene which I had witnessed in the Duke's room was but one of many. Rupert's proposals to me, of which she had, of course, been ignorant, in no way surprised her when I related them. She had herself warned Michael against Rupert, even when she was calling on me to deliver her from both of them. On this night, then, Rupert had determined to have his will. When she had gone to her room, 
he, having furnished himself with a key to it, had made his entrance. Her cries had brought the Duke, and there, in the dark room, while she screamed, the men had fought, and Rupert, having wounded his master with a mortal blow, had, on the servants rushing in, escaped through the window, as I have described. The Duke's blood, spurting out, had stained his opponent's shirt, but Rupert, not knowing that he had dealt Michael his death, was eager to finish the encounter. How he meant to deal with the other three of the band I know not. I dare say he did not think, for the killing of Michael was not premeditated. Antoinette, left alone with the Duke, had tried to staunch his wound, and thus was she busied till he died, and then, hearing Rupert's taunts, she had come forth to avenge him. Me she had not seen, nor did she, till I darted out of my ambush, and left after Rupert into the moat. The same moment found my friends on the scene. They had reached the chateau in due time, and waited ready by the door. But Johann, swept with the rest to the rescue of the Duke, did not open it. Nay, he took a part against Rupert, putting himself forward more bravely than any in his anxiety to avert suspicion, and he had received a wound in the embrasure of the window. Till nearly half-past two, Zapt waited. Then, following my orders, he had sent Fritz to search the banks of the moat. I was not there. Hastening back, Fritz told Zapt, and Zapt was for following orders still, and riding at full speed back to Tarlenheim, while Fritz would not hear of abandoning me, let me have ordered what I would. On this they disputed some few minutes. Then Zapt, persuaded by Fritz, detached a party under Bernenstein to gallop back to Tarlenheim and bring up the marshal, while the rest fell to on the great door of the chateau. For several minutes it resisted them. Then— just as Antoinette de Maubin fired at Rupert Hentzau on the bridge, they broke in, eight of them in all, and the first door they came to was the door of Michael's room, and Michael lay dead across the threshold, with a sword thrust through his breast. Zapt cried out at his death, as I had heard, and they rushed on to the servants, but these, in fear, dropped their weapons, and Antoinette flung herself weeping at Zapt's feet, and all she cried was that I had been at the end of the bridge— and had leapt off. "'What of the prisoner?' asked Zapt, but she shook her head. Then Zapt and Fritz, with the gentleman behind them, crossed the bridge, slowly, warily, and without noise, and Fritz stumbled over the body of de Gote in the way of the door. They felt him, and found him dead. Then they consulted, listening eagerly for any sound from the cells below, but there came none and they were greatly afraid that the king's guards had killed him, and, having pushed his body through the great pipe, had escaped the same way themselves. Yet, because I had been seen here, they had still some hope, thus indeed Fritz in his friendship told me, and going back to Michael's body, pushing aside Antoinette, who prayed by it, they found a key to the door which I had locked, and opened the door. The staircase was dark, and they would not use a torch at first, lest they should be the more exposed to fire, but soon Fritz cried, "'The door down there is open. See, there is light.' So they went on boldly, and found none to oppose them. And when they came to the outer room, and saw the Belgian, Bersonin, lying dead, they thanked God, zapped, saying, "'Aye, he has been here.' Then, rushing into the king's cell, they found Dechar lying dead across the dead physician, and the king on his back with his chair by him and Fritz cried, "'He's dead!' and Zapp drove all out of the room except Fritz, 
and knelt down by the king, and, having learnt more of wounds and the signs of death than I, he soon knew that the king was not dead, nor, if properly attended, would die. And they covered his face, and carried him to Duke Michael's room, and laid him there. And Antoinette rose from praying by the body of the duke, and went to bathe the king's head and dress his wounds, till a doctor came. And Zapt, seeing I had been there, and having heard Antoinette's story, sent Fritz to search the moat and then the forest. He dared send no one else. And Fritz found my horse, and feared the worst. Then, as I have told, he found me, guided by the shout with which I had called on Rupert to stop and face me, and I think a man has never been more glad to find his own brother alive than was Fritz to come on me, so that in love and anxiety for me he thought nothing of a thing so great as would have been the death of Rupert Hentzow. Yet, had Fritz killed him, I should have grudged it. The enterprise of the King's rescue being thus prosperously concluded, it lay on Colonel Zapt to secure secrecy as to the King ever having been in need of rescue. Antoinette de Maubin and Johann the Keeper, who indeed was too much hurt to be wagging his tongue just now, were sworn to reveal nothing, and Fritz went forth to find, not the King, but the unnamed friend of the King, who had lain in Zender and flashed for a moment before the dazed eyes of Duke Michael's servants on the drawbridge. The metamorphosis had happened, and the king, wounded almost to death by the attacks of the jailers who guarded his friend, had at last overcome them, and rested now, wounded but alive, in Black Michael's own room in the castle. There he had been carried, his face covered with a cloth from the cell, and orders issued that if his friend were found he should be brought directly and privately to the king, and that meanwhile messengers should ride at full speed to Tarlenheim to tell Marshal Strakentz to assure the princess of the king's safety, and to come himself with all speed to greet the king. The princess was enjoined to remain at Tarlenheim, and there await her cousin's coming, or his further injunctions. Thus the king would come to his own again, having wrought brave deeds, and escaped almost by a miracle the treacherous assault of his unnatural brother. This ingenious arrangement of my long-headed old friend prospered in every way, save where it encountered a force that often defeats the most cunning schemes. I mean nothing else than the pleasure of a woman. For let her cousin and sovereign send what command he chose, or Colonel Zapp chose for him, and let Marshal Strakentz insist as he would, the Princess Flavia was in no way minded to rest at Tarlenheim, while her lover lay wounded at Zender, and when the Marshal, with a small suite, rose forth from Tarlenheim on the way to Zender, the princess's carriage followed immediately behind, and in this order they passed through the town where the report was already rife that the king, going the night before to remonstrate with his brother in all friendliness, for that he held one of the king's friends in confinement in the castle, had been most traitoriously set upon, that there had been a desperate conflict, that the duke was slain with several of his gentlemen, and that the king, wounded as he was, had seized and held the castle of Zender. All of which talk made, as may be supposed, a mighty excitement, and the wires were set in motion, and the tidings came to Strelsau, only just after orders had been sent thither to parade the troops, and over all the dissatisfied quarters of the town with a display of force. Thus the Princess Flavia came to Zender, and as she drove up the hill with the marshal riding by the wheel, and still imploring her to return in obedience to the king's orders, 
Fritz von Thalenheim, with the prisoner of Zender, came to the edge of the forest. I had revived from my swoon, and walked, resting on Fritz's arm, and looking out from the cover of the trees I saw the princess. Suddenly understanding from a glance at my companion's face that we must not meet her, I sank on my knees behind a clump of bushes. But there was one whom we had forgotten, but who had followed us, and was not disposed to let slip the chance of earning a smile and maybe a crown or two. And while we lay hidden, the little farm-girl came by us, and ran to the princess, curtsying and crying, "'Madame, the king is here, in the bushes. May I guide you to him, madame?' "'Nonsense, child,' said old Strakens. "'The king lies wounded in the castle.' "'Yes, sir, he's wounded, I know, but he's there, with Count Fritz, and not at the castle,' she persisted. "'Is he in two places, or rather two kings?' asked Flavia, bewildered. "'And how should he be here?' "'He pursued a gentleman, madame, and they fought till Count Fritz came, "'and the other gentleman took my father's horse from me and rode away. "'But the king is here with Count Fritz. "'Why, madame, is there another man in Ruritania like the king?' "'No, my child,' said Flavia softly. "'I was told it afterwards. "'And she smiled and gave the girl money.' "'I will go and see this gentleman.' And she rose to alight from the carriage. But at this moment Zapt came riding from the castle, and seeing the princess, made the best of a bad job, and cried to her that the king was well tended and in no danger. "'In the castle?' she asked. "'Where else, madame?' said he, bowing. "'But this girl says he is yonder with Count Fritz.' Zapp turns his eyes on the child with an incredulous smile. "'Every fine gentleman is a king to such,' said he. "'Why, he's as like the king as one pea to another, madame,' cried the girl, a little shaken, but still obstinate. Zapp started round. The old marshal's face asked unspoken questions. Flavia's glance was no less eloquent. Suspicion spreads quick.' "'I'll ride myself and see this man,' said Zapt hastily. "'Nay, I'll come myself,' said the princess. "'Then come alone,' he whispered. And she, obedient to the strange hinting in his face, prayed the marshal and the rest to wait, and she and Zapt came on foot towards where we lay, Zapt waving to the farm-girl to keep at a distance. And when I saw them coming I sat in a sad heap on the ground, and buried my face in my hands, I could not look at her. Fritz knelt by me, laying his hand on my shoulder. "'Speak low, whatever you say,' I heard Sapt whisper as they came up, and the next thing I heard was a low cry, half of joy, half of fear, from the princess. "'It is he! Are you hurt?' And she fell on the ground by me, and gently pulled my hands away, but I kept my eyes to the ground. "'It is the king,' she said. "'Pray, Colonel Zapp, tell me where lay the wit of the joke you played on me?' We answered none of us. We three were silent before her. Regardless of them, she threw her arms round my neck and kissed me. Then Zapp spoke in a low, hoarse whisper. "'It is not the king. Don't kiss him. He is not the king.' She drew back for a moment. Then, with an arm still round my neck, she asked in superb indignation— "'Do I not know my love? Rudolf, my love!' "'It is not the king,' said old Zapt again, and a sudden sob broke from tender-hearted Fritz. 
It was the sob that told her no comedy was afoot. "'He is the king!' she cried. "'It is the king's face, the king's ring, my ring. It is my love!' "'Your love, madame,' said old Zapt. "'But not the king. The king is there in the castle. This gentleman—' "'Look at me! Rudolph, look at me!' she cried, taking my face between her hands. "'Why do you let them torment me? Tell me what it means!' Then I spoke, gazing into her eyes. "'God forgive me, madame,' I said. "'I am not the king.' I felt her hands clutch my cheeks. She gazed at me as never man's face was scanned yet. And I, silent again, saw wonder born, and doubt grow, and terror spring to life as she looked. And very gradually the grasp of her hands slackened. She turned to Zapt, to Fritz, and back to me. Then suddenly she reeled forward and fell in my arms— and with a great cry of pain I gathered her to me and kissed her lips. Zapt laid his hand on my arm. I looked up in his face, and I laid her softly on the ground and stood up, looking on her, cursing heaven that young Rupert's sword had spared me for this sharper pang. End of chapter 20This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter 21 If Love Were All it was night, and I was in the cell wherein the king had lain in the castle of Zender. The great pipe that Rupert of Hentzau had nicknamed Jacob's Ladder was gone, and the lights in the room across the moat twinkled in the darkness. All was still. The din and clash of strife were gone. I had spent the day hidden in the forest, from the time when Fritz had led me off, leaving Zapt with the princess. Under cover of dusk, muffled up, I had been brought to the castle, and lodged where I now lay. Though three men had died there, two of them by my hand, I was not troubled by ghosts. I had thrown myself on a pallet by the window, and was looking out on the black water. Johann, the keeper, still pale from his wound, but not much hurt besides, had brought me supper. He told me that the king was doing well that he had seen the princess, that she and he, Zapt and Fritz, had been long together. Marshal Strakens was gone to Streltzau, Black Michael lay in his coffin, and Antoinette de Maubin watched by him. Had I not heard from the chapel priests singing mass for him? Outside there were strange rumours afloat. Some said that the prisoner of Zender was dead, some that he had vanished yet alive. Some that he was a friend who had served the king well in some adventure in England, others that he had discovered the duke's plots, and had therefore been kidnapped by him. One or two shrewd fellows shook their heads and said only that they would say nothing, but they had suspicions that more was to be known than was known, if Colonel Zapt would tell all he knew. 
Thus Johann chattered till I sent him away, and lay there alone, thinking, not of the future, but as a man is wont to do when stirring things have happened to him, rehearsing the events of the past weeks, and wondering how strangely they had fallen out. And above me, in the stillness of the night, I heard the standards flapping against their poles, for Black Michael's banner hung there at half-mast. High and above it, the royal flag of Ruritania, floating for one night more over my head. Habit grows so quick that only by an effort did I recall that it floated no longer for me. Presently, Fritz von Tallenheim came into the room. I was standing then by the window. The glass was opened, and I was idly fingering the cement which clung to the masonry where Jacob's ladder had been. He told me briefly that the king wanted me, and together we crossed the drawbridge and entered the room that had been Black Michael's. The king was lying there in bed. Our doctor from Tarlenheim was in attendance on him, and whispered to me that my visit must be brief. The king held out his hand and shook mine. Fritz and the doctor withdrew to the window. I took the king's ring from my finger and placed it on his. "'I have tried not to dishonour it, sire,' said I. "'I can't talk much to you,' he said in a weak voice. "'I have had a great fight with Zapt and the marshal, "'for we have told the marshal everything. "'I wanted to take you to Strelsau and keep you with me, "'and tell everyone of what you had done, "'and you would have been my best and nearest friend, Cousin Rudolph. "'But they tell me I must not.' "'and that the secret must be kept, if kept it can be.' "'They are right, sire. Let me go. My work here is done.' "'Yes, it is done, as no man but you could have done it. "'When they see me again I shall have my beard on. "'I shall—yes, faith, I shall be wasted with sickness. "'They will not wonder that the king looks changed in face.' "'Cousin, I shall try to let them find him changed in nothing else. "'You have shown me how to play the king.' "'Sire,' said I, "'I can take no praise from you. "'It is by the narrowest grace of God "'that I was not a worse traitor than your brother.' "'He turned inquiring eyes on me, "'but a sick man shrinks from puzzles, "'and he had no strength to question me. "'His glance fell on Flavia's ring, which I wore.' I thought he would question me about it, but, after fingering it idly, he let his head fall on his pillow. "'I don't know when I shall see you again,' he said, faintly, almost listlessly. "'If I can ever serve you again, sire,' I answered. His eyelids closed. Fritz came with the doctor. I kissed the king's hand and let Fritz lead me away.' I have never seen the king since. Outside, Fritz turned, not to the right, back towards the drawbridge, but to the left, and without speaking led me upstairs, through a handsome corridor in the chateau. "'Where are we going?' I asked. Looking away from me, Fritz answered, "'She has sent for you. When it is over, come back to the bridge. I'll wait for you there.' "'What does she want?' said I, breathing quickly. He shook his head. "'Does she know everything?' "'Yes, everything.' He opened a door, and, gently pushing me in, closed it behind me. I found myself in a drawing-room, small and richly furnished. 
At first I thought that I was alone, for the light that came from a pair of shaded candles on the mantelpiece was very dim. But presently I discerned a woman's figure standing by the window. I knew it was the princess, and I walked up to her, fell on one knee, and carried the hand that hung by her side to my lips. She neither moved nor spoke. I rose to my feet, and, piercing the gloom with my eager eyes, saw her pale face and the gleam of her hair, and before I knew I spoke softly. Flavia! She trembled a little, and looked round. Then she darted to me, taking hold of me. "'Don't stand! Don't stand! No, you mustn't! You're hurt! Sit down! Here! Here!' She made me sit on a sofa, and put her hand on my forehead. "'How hot your head is!' she said, sinking on her knees by me. Then she laid her head against me, and I heard her murmur, "'My darling, how hot your head is!' Somehow love gives even to a dull man the knowledge of his lover's heart. I had come to humble myself and pray pardon for my presumption. But what I said now was, "'I love you with all my heart and soul.' For what troubled and shamed her? Not her love for me, but for the fear that I had counterfeited the lover as I had acted the king, and taken her kisses with a smothered smile. "'With all my life and heart,' said I, as she clung to me, Always, from the first moment I saw you in the cathedral, there has been but one woman in the world to me, and there will be no other. But God forgive me the wrong I've done you. They made you do it, she said quickly, and she added, raising her head and looking in my eyes, it might have made no difference if I'd known it. It was always you, never the king, and she raised herself up and kissed me. "'I meant to tell you,' said I. "'I was going to on the night of the ball in Strelsau, when Zapt interrupted me. "'After that I, I couldn't. "'I couldn't risk losing you before—before I, I must. "'My darling, for you I nearly left the king to die. "'I know, I know. "'What are we to do now, Rudolph?' "'I put my arm round her, and held her up, while I said—' "'I am going away to-night.' "'Ah, oh, no, no!' she cried. "'Not to-night. "'I must go to-night, before more people have seen me. "'And how would you have me stay, sweetheart, except—' "'If I could come with you?' she whispered, very low. "'My God!' said I, roughly. "'Don't talk about that.' "'And I thrust her a little back from me. "'Why not? "'I love you. "'You're as good a gentleman as the King.' Then I was false to all that I should have held by, for I caught her in my arms and prayed her, in words that I will not write, to come with me, daring all Ruritania to take her from me. And for a while she listened, with wondering, dazzled eyes, but as her eyes looked on me, I grew ashamed, and my voice died away in broken murmurs and stammerings, and at last I was silent. She drew herself away from me, and stood against the wall, while I sat on the edge of the sofa, trembling in every limb, knowing what I had done, loathing it, obstinate not to undo it. So we rested a long time. "'I am mad,' I said sullenly. "'I love your madness, dear,' she answered. Her face was away from me, 
but I caught the sparkle of a tear on her cheek. I clutched the sofa with my hand and held myself there. "'Is love the only thing?' she asked, in low, sweet tones that seemed to bring a calm even to my wrung heart. "'If love were the only thing, I would follow you, in rags if need be, to the world's end, for you hold my heart in the hollow of your hand. But is love the only thing?' I made her no answer. It gives me shame now to think that I would not help her. She came near me and laid her hand on my shoulder. I put my hand up and held hers. I know people write and talk as if it were. Perhaps for some fate lets it be. Ah, if I were one of them. But if love had been the only thing, you would have let the king die in his cell. I kissed her hand. Honour binds a woman, too, Rudolph. My honour lies in being true to my country and my house. I don't know why God has let me love you, but I know that I must stay. Still I said nothing, and she, pausing a while, then went on. Your ring will always be on my finger, your heart in my heart, the touch of your lips on mine. But you must go, and I must stay. Perhaps I must do what it kills me to think of doing. I knew what she meant, and a shiver ran through me, but I could not utterly fail beside her. I rose and, and took her hand. Do what you will, or what you must, I said. I think God shows his purposes to such as you. My part is lighter, for your ring shall be on my finger and your heart in mine, and no touch, save of your lips, will ever be on mine. So may God comfort you, my darling. There struck on our ears the sound of singing. The priests in the chapel were singing masses for the souls of those who lay dead. They seemed to chant a requiem over our buried joy, to pray forgiveness for our love that would not die. The soft, sweet, pitiful music rose and fell as we stood opposite each other, her hands in mine. My queen and my beauty, said I. "'My lover, a true knight,' she said. "'Perhaps we shall never see one another again. "'Kiss me, my dear, and go.' "'I kissed her as she bade me, "'but at the last she clung to me, "'whispering nothing but my name, "'and that over and over again, "'and again and again. "'And then I left her. "'Rapidly I walked down to the bridge. "'Zapt and Fritz were waiting for me. Under their directions I changed my dress, and muffling my face as I had done more than once before, I mounted with them at the door of the castle, and we three rode through the night and on to the breaking day, and found ourselves at a little roadside station just over the border of Ruritania. The train was not quite due, and I walked with them in a meadow by a little brook while we waited for it. They promised to send me all news. They overwhelmed me with kindness. Even old Zapt was touched to gentleness, while Fritz was half unmanned. I listened in a kind of dream to all they said. Rudolph, 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 still rang in my ears, a burden of sorrow and of love. At last they saw that I could not heed them, and we walked up and down in silence, till Fritz touched me on the arm and I saw a mile or more away the blue smoke of the train. 
Then I held out a hand to each of them. "'We are all but half men this morning,' said I, smiling. "'But we have been men, eh, Sapt and Fritz, old friends? "'We have run a good course between us.' "'We have defeated traitors and set the king firm on his throne,' said Zapt. Then Fritz von Tarlenheim suddenly, before I could discern his purpose or stay him, uncovered his head, and bent as he used to do, and kissed my hand. And, as I snatched it away, he said, trying to laugh, "'Heaven doesn't always make the right men kings.' Old Zapp twisted his mouth as he wrung my hand. "'The devil has his share in most things,' said he. The people at the station looked curiously at the tall man with the muffled face, but we took no notice of their glances. I stood with my two friends, and waited till the train came up to us. Then we shook hands again, saying nothing, and both this time, and indeed from old Zapt it seemed strange, bared their heads, and so stood still till the train bore me away from their sight so that it was thought that some great man travelled privately for his pleasure from the little station that morning, whereas in truth it was only I, Rudolf Rassendil, an English gentleman, a cadet of a good house, but a man of no wealth, nor position, nor of much rank. They would have been disappointed to know that. Yet had they known all, they would have looked more curiously still. For be I what I might now, I had been for three months a king, which, if not a thing to be proud of, is at least an experience to have undergone. Doubtless I should have thought more of it, had there not echoed through the air, from the towers of Zender that we were leaving far away, into my ears and into my heart, the cry of a woman's love. Rudolph! 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 Hark! I hear it now. End of chapter 21 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, and to find out how you could volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Chapter twenty two Present, Past and Future The details of my return home can have but little interest. I went straight to the Tyrol and spent a quiet fortnight, mostly on my back, for a severe chill developed itself and I was also the victim of a nervous reaction, which made me weak as a baby. As soon as I had reached my quarters, I sent an apparently careless postcard to my brother, announcing my good health and prospective return. That would serve to satisfy the inquiries as to my whereabouts, which were probably still vexing the prefect of the police of Strelsau. I let my moustache and imperial grow again and as hair comes quickly on my face, they were respectable, though not luxuriant, by the time that I landed myself in Paris, and called on my friend George Featherly. My interview with him was chiefly remarkable for the number of unwilling but necessary falsehoods that I told, and I rallied him unmercifully when he told me that he had made up his mind that I had gone in the track of Madame de Maubon to Strelsau, 
The lady, it appears, was back in Paris, but was living in great seclusion, a fact for which gossip found no difficulty in accounting. Did not all the world know of the treachery and death of Duke Michael? Nevertheless, George bade Bernard Bertrand be of good cheer, for, said he flippantly, a live poet is better than a dead duke. Then he turned on me and asked, "'What have you been doing to your moustache?" "'To tell the truth,' I answered, assuming a sly air, "'a man now and then has reasons for wishing to alter his appearance. "'But it's coming on very well again.' "'What? Then I wasn't so far out. "'If not the fair Antoinette, there was a charmer.' "'There is always a charmer,' said I, sententiously. "'But George would not be satisfied till he had wormed out of me.' He took much pride in his ingenuity, an absolutely imaginary love affair, attended with the proper soupçon of scandal, which had kept me all this time in the peaceful regions of the Tyrol. In return for this narrative, George regaled me with a great deal of what he called inside information, known only to diplomats, as the true course of events in Ruritania, the plots and counterplots. In his opinion, he told me, with a significant nod, there was more to be said for Black Michael than the public supposed, and he hinted at a well-founded suspicion that the mysterious prisoner of Zender, concerning whom a good many paragraphs had appeared, was not a man at all, but—here I had much ado not to smile—a woman disguised as a man, and that strife between the king and his brother for this imaginary lady's favour was at the bottom of their quarrel. "'Perhaps it was Madame de Maubin herself,' I suggested. "'No,' said George decisively. "'Antoinette de Maubin was jealous of her, "'and betrayed the Duke to the King for that reason. "'And to confirm what I said, "'it's well known that the Princess Flavia "'is now extremely cold to the King, "'after having been most affectionate.' "'At this point I changed the subject, "'and escaped from George's inspired delusions.' But if diplomats never know anything more than they had succeeded in finding out in this instance, they appear to me to be somewhat expensive luxuries. While in Paris I wrote to Antoinette, though I did not venture to call upon her. I received in return a very affecting letter, in which she assured me that the King's generosity and kindness, no less than her regard for me, bound her conscience to absolute secrecy. She expressed the intention of settling in the country, and withdrawing herself entirely from society. Whether she carried out her designs I have never heard, but as I have not met her, or heard news of her up to this time, it is probable that she did. There is no doubt that she was deeply attached to the Duke of Strelsau, and her conduct at the time of his death proved that no knowledge of the man's real character was enough to root her regard for him out of her heart. I had one more battle left to fight, a battle that would, I knew, be severe, and was bound to end in my complete defeat. Was I not back from the Tyrol without having made any study of its inhabitants, institutions, scenery, fauna, flora, or other features? Had I not simply wasted my time in my usual frivolous, good-for-nothing way? That was the aspect of the matter which I was obliged to admit would present itself to my sister-in-law and against a verdict based on such evidence I had really no defence to offer. It may be supposed, then, that I presented myself in Park Lane in a shamefaced, sheepish fashion. On the whole my reception was not so alarming as I had feared. 
It turned out that I had done not what Rose wished, but, the next best thing, what she had prophesied. She had declared that I should make no notes, record no observations, gather no materials. My brother, on the other hand, had been weak enough to maintain that a really serious resolve had at length animated me. When I returned empty-handed, Rose was so occupied in triumphing over Burlesdon that she let me down quite easily, devoting the greater part of her reproaches to my failure to advertise my friends of my whereabouts. "'We've wasted a lot of time trying to find you,' she said. "'I know you have,' said I. "'Half our ambassadors have led weary lives on my account. George Featherly told me so. But why should you have been anxious? I can take care of myself.' "'Oh, it wasn't that,' she cried scornfully. "'But I wanted to tell you about Sir Jacob Borrodale. "'You know he's got an embassy. "'At least he will have in a month, "'and he wrote to say he hoped you would go with him.' "'Where's he going to?' "'He's going to succeed Lord Topham at Strelsau,' said she. "'You couldn't have a nicer place, short of Paris.' "'Strelsau, hmm,' said I, glancing at my brother. "'Oh, that doesn't matter,' exclaimed Rose impatiently. "'Now, you will go, won't you?' "'I don't know that I care about it.' "'Oh, you're too exasperating. "'And I don't think I can go to Strelsau. "'My dear Rose, would it be suitable? "'Oh, nobody remembers that horrid old story now.' "'Upon this I took out of my pocket a portrait of the King of Ruritania.' It had been taken a month or two before he ascended the throne. She could not miss my point when I said, putting it into her hands, "'In case you have not seen, or not noticed, a picture of Rudolph V, there he is. Don't you think they might recall the story, if I appeared at the court of Ruritania?' My sister-in-law looked at the portrait, and then at me. "'Goodness gracious!' she said, and flung the photograph down on the table. "'What do you say, Bob?' I asked. Burlesdon got up, went to a corner of the room, and searched in a heap of newspapers. Presently he came back with a copy of the Illustrated London News. Opening the paper, he displayed a double-page engraving of the coronation of Rudolf V at Strelsau. The photograph and the picture he laid side by side. I sat at the table fronting them, and as I looked I grew absorbed. My eye travelled from my own portrait to Zapt, to Strakens, to the rich robes of the cardinal, to Black Michael's face, to the stately figure of the princess by his side. Long I looked, and eagerly. I was roused by my brother's hand on my shoulder. He was gazing down at me with a puzzled expression. "'It's a remarkable likeness, you see,' said I. "'I really think I had better not go to Ruritania.' Rose, though half-convinced, would not abandon her position. "'It's just an excuse,' she said pettishly. "'You don't want to do anything. Why, you might become an ambassador.' "'I don't think I want to be an ambassador,' said I. "'It's more than you ever will be,' she retorted. And "'That is very likely true, but it is not more than I have been. The idea of being an ambassador could scarcely dazzle me. I had been a king.' So pretty Rose left us in dudgeon, and Burlesdon, lighting a cigarette, looked at me still with that curious gaze. "'That picture in the paper,' he said. "'Well, what of it? It shows that the King of Ruritania and your humble servant are as like as two peas.' 
My brother shook his head. "'I suppose so,' he said. "'But I should know you from the man in the photograph.' "'And not from the picture in the paper?' "'I should know the photograph from the picture. The picture's very like the photograph, but—' "'Well?' "'It's more like you,' said my brother. "'My brother is a good man and true, so that for all that he is a married man and mighty fond of his wife—' He should know any secret of mine, but this secret was not mine, and I could not tell it to him. "'I don't think it's as much like me as the photograph,' said I boldly. "'But anyhow, Bob, I won't go to Strelsau.' "'No, don't go to Strelsau, Rudolph,' said he. "'And whether he suspects anything, or has a glimmer of the truth, I do not know.' If he has, he keeps it to himself, and he and I never refer to it, and we let Sir Jacob Borrowdale find another attaché. Since all these events, whose history I have set down, happened, I have lived a very quiet life at a small house which I have taken in the country. The ordinary ambitions and aims of men in my position seem to me dull and unattractive. I have little fancy for the whirl of society, and none for the jostle of politics. Lady Burlesdon utterly despairs of me. My neighbours think me an indolent, dreamy, unsociable fellow. Yet I am a young man, and sometimes I have a fancy. The superstitious would call it a presentiment, that my part in life is not yet altogether played, that somehow and some day I shall mix again in great affairs. I shall again spin policies in a busy brain, match my wits against my enemies, brace my muscles to fight a good fight, and strike stout blows. Such is the tissue of my thoughts, as, with gun or rod in hand, I wander through the woods or by the side of the stream. Whether the fancy will be fulfilled, I cannot tell. Still less whether the scene that, led by memory, I lay for my new exploits will be the true one for I love to see myself once again in the crowded streets of Strelsau, or beneath the frowning keep of the castle of Zender. Thus led, my broodings leave the future, and turn back on the past. Shapes rise before me in long array. The first wild revel with the king, the rush with my brave tea-table, the night in the moat, the pursuit in the forest, my friends and my foes, the people who learnt to love and honour me, the desperate men who tried to kill me, and from amidst these last comes one who alone of all these yet moves on earth, though where I know not, yet plans, as I do not doubt, wickedness, yet turns women's hearts to softness, and men's to fear and hate. Where is young Rupert of Hentzau, the boy who came so nigh to beating me? When his name comes into my head I feel my hand grip, and the blood move quicker through my veins, and the hint of fate, the presentiment, seems to grow stronger and more definite, and to whisper insistently in my ear that I have yet a hand to play with young Rupert. Therefore I exercise myself in arms, and seek to put off the day when the vigour of youth must leave me. One break comes every year in my quiet life. Then I go to Dresden, and there I am met by my dear friend and companion, Fritz von Thalenheim. Last time his pretty wife Helga came, and a lusty crowing baby with her. And for a week Fritz and I are together, and I hear all of what falls out in Strelsau, and in the evenings as we walk and smoke together we talk of Zapp 
to live with a king, and often of young Rupert, and as the hours grow small, at last we speak of Flavia. For every year Fritz carries with him to Dresden a little box. In it lies a red rose, and round the stalk of the rose is a slip of paper, with the words written, Rudolph, Flavia, always, and the like I send back by him. That message, and the wearing of the rings, are all that now bind me and the Queen of Ruritania. For, nobler as I hold her for the act, she has followed where her duty to her country and her house led her, and is the wife of the King, uniting his subjects to him by the love they bear to her, giving peace and quiet days to thousands by her self-sacrifice. There are moments when I dare not think of it, but there are others when I rise in spirit to where she ever dwells. Then I can thank God that I love the noblest lady in the world, the most gracious and beautiful, and that there was nothing in my love that made her fall short in her high duty. Shall I see her face again, the pale face and the glorious hair? Of that I know nothing. Fate has no hint, my heart no presentiment. I do not know. In this world, perhaps nay, it is likely never. And can it be that somewhere, in a manner whereof our flesh-bound minds have no apprehension, she and I will be together again, with nothing to come between us, nothing to forbid our love? That I know not, nor wiser heads than mine. But if it be never, if I can never hold sweet converse again with her, or look upon her face, or know from her her love, why, then, this side the grave I will live as becomes the man whom she loves, and for the other side I must pray a dreamless sleep. End of chapter 22 And of The Prisoner of Zender by Anthony Hope Read by Andy Minter Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.